Hello, everyone. This is Cobain the Christian. Today we have the one, the only, the lovely James Snap, who's going to be talking to us about uh, New Testament textual criticism and why he thinks uh, John chapter 8 and Mark 16, the long ending of Mark, uh, are authentic, as well as some general questions concerning textual criticism. Um, before we get into that, I uh, just want to start with a brief prayer. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our minds to the understanding of thy gospel teachings, and plant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down on carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is everlasting, thine all holy good and life-creating spirit, both now and ever, to the ages of ages. Amen. Uh, so welcome to the program, and thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Uh, so I wanted to start by uh, asking how you got into the subject. What's your personal religious background? Were you raised religious? Um, and at what point did you get into textual critical issues? Yes, I, I was raised in the, the non-denominational fellowship of Christian churches and Church of Christ here in America. Uh, rel relatively conservative, if the people aren't familiar with that. There are li somewhat liberal branches of the restoration movement, but I'm from the more conservative branch. So is that like the Stone Campbell? It's, it's the, the Stone Campbell movement, yes. Okay, great. And you're still in that context? Yes, I don't usually call it the Stone Campbell movement. I, I prefer the term restoration movement. Right, okay. Yes, it's, 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 it's the same thing. Right. Uh, so at what point did you get interested in New Testament studies? Well, in about 1986, I discovered a, a copy of Chrisop Blake's book, The Text of the New Testament. I think I still have it here somewhere. But uh, that book introduced me to the subject of textual criticism in general, and it kind of grew from there. So uh, that's a different book than the Metzger one, I think. Uh, yes, Blake spoke as much earlier. Uh, Metzger borrowed some, some sentences directly from Blake. But uh, Lake was much more original. So when did you start uh, finding yourself acquiring these heterodox views on the text of the New Testament? Or is that something that you always held going in? Well, um, I don't know how heterodox you would say they were. I, I would say, uh, uh, generally speaking, that these, these views that I have are, are very orthodox. Or the theologically, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but as far as the looking into Mark 16, I wanted to kind of re refrain from reaching a con conclusion until I was 40 years old and, and, so, and, and, and had looked into it quite a bit before that. Yeah, so yeah. after I turned 40, uh, that's when I began to uh, be more vocal about um, saying things like uh, what this person over here is saying or what that commentary over there is saying. Um, those guys are somewhat confused. And um, but I wanted to make sure that I had the research and the, the data to back it up. Right, right. So have you done a formal study in this or is this uh, just something that you have been doing on the side? Uh, what what to what well, degree well, are you from, in? Uh, from 1990 to about 2000, I was in Belize, Central America, and I continued my studies, but uh, there was nothing of a, a formal accredited nature involved okay yeah 
And when did you publish your first book? I think it was back in back in 2007. I put something online and I've been been working on it since then. I've also published uh, on YouTube uh, a series of 24s so far uh, lectures on the, the general subject of textual criticism. Mark 16 and and, and uh, John 753 through 811 are two of the topics that I discuss in the course of those those lectures. Yeah, yeah. So they're by far not the only ones. Yeah, right, right. So me personally, um, uh, the authenticity of the long ending of Mark and uh, the Pericopi Adulteri, I think that's how you pronounce it. I just usually call it the PA, um, uh, the story of the woman caught in adultery for those who aren't familiar. Um, it's always something that I very much would have liked to believe was authentic, um, but I wasn't aware that a robust case could really be made for it until a few years ago when a friend of mine uh, introduced me to Nicholas Lund's uh, book on the long ending of Mark, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, and I was just stunned reading through that at the degree to which um, it seemed the modern academic consensus within the world of New Testament studies uh, was predicated essentially on the fact of consensus itself. Um, and through the Lund book, I became interested in um, uh, uh, your own books on uh, Mark 16 and uh, John chapter 8. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with the Lund book, uh, Craig Evans, who's certainly no fundamentalist, uh, wrote a very um, uh, enthusiastic um, recommendation saying that uh, it may change his own view on it. So some people have reviewed the book and said, oh, you know, this is just fringe. But, you know, if someone like Craig Evans thinks the evidence is powerful enough to maybe reshape his own view, at least as to the certainty of Mark 16, I think we should be open to uh, um, considering uh, embracing the, as you put it, the more traditional um, view on these texts. So um, did, have you had any uh, interaction with Lun? Uh, did you shape his views? Um, um, I, I think Lon references my work uh, a, a few times if you look through his footnotes. And uh, so what would you say are the, if you could just lay out two or three general problems with the way that textual criticism is done in the academy today, what are the systemic roots of these mistaken and near view consensuses on these texts? Well, I think a, a, a great deal of it is consists of simply looking into Metzger's textual commentary and uh, trying to find different ways to recycle what Metzger claimed yeah. and saying, well, Metzger has spoken. That's the end of the story. Yeah. And after, after reading Metzger, people say, well, let's table that subject, subject and they never get back to it. Yeah. And it's generally regarded as a consensus. Metzger's book is highly influential. Uh, he passed away a few years ago, but his book is very influential to this day. Yeah. Uh, there's probably no book on textual criticism that is as read as his textual commentary. Yeah. Um, uh, and I was introduced to Metzger um, when I was first getting into Christian apologetics because he has an interview in uh, Lee Strobel's Case for Christ where he argues that the New Testament text uh, can be reconstructed with a great degree of accuracy. Uh, but of course, one of his most famous students is uh, the infamous Bart Ehrman. Uh, so you can take uh, those ideas in different directions. And what, what, what 
what would you have to say to someone like Bart Ehrman? Um, do you think that his views naturally follow from some of the pillars of modern New Testament textual criticism? Um, what do you have to say that you think a Metzger couldn't say? Well, when you, when you say his views, uh, Ehrman has lots of different views. Uh, it, 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 uh, you have to go topic by topic, really. But I'd say that the, uh, the text itself and the textual difficulties that you have in, in textual criticism do not generally evoke the conclusions that Metzger likes to bring to his students, like, and therefore God is evil. Yeah. Or, and therefore you wouldn't want to worship this God. It's like, um, he's working from different philosophical premises. The premises that I'm concerned with in my books are more, more te technical. The, yeah. uh, the, the text critical questions and and most of the text critical questions that Metzger brings up in say misquoting Jesus are not new issues. Ehrman, you mean? Yeah, er, yeah, Ehrman. Most of the questions that Ehrman brings up are not new issues. Those were questions that were brought up back in the 1800s and well before the 1800s. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, very devout people have studied these same questions and none of and and have not said well we need to wrap up and abandon christianity then yeah uh, these just don't have the kind of implications that Ehrman likes to paint him as having yeah um and on that kind of general notes what, were, what are your views on um the primacy of if you can use the word primacy of the byzantine versus the alexandrian textual traditions to what degree do you think that those shape some of these subsidiary points about specific texts well i, I like to be clear and, and clear up some some uh misassumptions that people sometimes bring i am not a king james oldest and i'm not a byzantine priorist and I'm, i don't believe in that the Textus receptus is, is perfect by any means. Uh, so, so that needs to be cleared up. I do believe that the Byzantine text has a large core that is ancient. Uh, Mr. Dr. Sturz, uh, I think I have his book here somewhere, uh, uh, in his book about the, the Byzantine text, uh, showed that there are readings in the papyri that if, if Port had had the papyri, then in 1881, Hort wouldn't have proposed the things that he proposed. Mm -hmm. There would have to be a, a third source of readings besides the Western and the Alexandrian texts, and yeah. that Western and that non-Western, non-Byzantine text as the source of those readings in the papyri uh, needs to be early. Yeah. And so uh, that doesn't mean the Byzantine text is always right, but it does mean that it's worthy of a lot more consideration than the compilers of the Nestle Allen text have given them the Byzantine text. If you look in the Byzantine, if you look in the, the Nestle Allen uh, Greek New Testament, uh, and, and, and it's in its 28th edition now, but it, and it's, I got the 27th here, but uh, that's almost not, more than 99% Alexandrian. Right. When the Byzantine text and the Alexandrian text agree, the, the editors choose the Alexandrian almost 99% of the time, if not higher. And, and why do you think that is? I think it's because Hort's premises have dominated the field for so long that they thought that that was the natural way to go. If you look in, uh, 
Allen's text of the New Testament, you will see very, very upfront statements that say, oh yeah, we've got all these Byzantine manuscripts and we've ignored them. We have not used them for the purpose of textual criticism. Not only the minuscules in the Middle Ages, but also the much earlier unstules that have a predominantly Byzantine text. Yeah, we just set those aside. We didn't use those in our text critical work. How come? Because apparently, yeah, I like to sit down with Alan and talk with him about that. But, <laughs> um, but uh, basically, I, I think it was because they believed that horse theory was still valid. And subsequently to Alan working, uh, James Royce has shown that the what was previously described as a fundamental premise of textual criticism that the the prefer the shorter reading, um, Royce has pretty much dismantled that, if not reversed it. It's, Royce so, has shown that the length of a of a reading doesn't have anything to do with whether or not it's original or not. Royce showed that in the, in the papyri. In the, very, in the early papyri, that the scribes tended to omit material twice as often as they added material. Yeah. And yeah. that's the opposite of the impression that you get from, say, uh, a Daniel Wallace uh, right. analysis. It's the opposite yeah. of what you get from James White's analysis. Right, right. Uh, these guys have apparently either, either not read Royce or they've ignored Royce, but yeah. on the bottom line, uh, Royce's, Royce's findings do have an impact, which means that at the very least, length of a reading does not determine whether or not it's original. And that and, itself is one, one, just one point. And this idea that if the reading was shorter, it was more likely to be original, was that just based on an intuition? Um, that was based on, on a select Amount of amount of readings that could be brought forward to show, well, yeah, here in this case it's obvious because because twice as often is is not the same as saying it never happens. Sometimes sometimes the longer reading is not an original, right? And uh, people have uh, focused on those trees, but not seen the forest. So yeah, to speak. right, right. Uh, and before we get into the uh, two most famous instances of disputed. Uh, readings. I wonder if you could comment on some of the smaller ones, or just a couple of them. Um, one of them being uh, in the Gospel of Mark that someone comes to Jesus to be healed, and uh, it says in uh, a minority of the early manuscripts, Jesus was moved with anger. Um, and uh, the argument that I've heard is that it's so unlikely that a scribe would change moved with compassion, which is the majority reading too, moved with anger, that it's much more probable that this is the original word of the author. Uh, what's your take uh, on the which reading is authentic and the reasoning that lies behind that kind of argument? Yes. In Mark chapter 1, verse 41, when the leper comes to Jesus and says, if you are willing, you can make me whole. And then Jesus in response is, in most manuscripts, he is compassionate. Yes, blank this. In fact, there's only one Greek manuscript. It's not like a minority. Yeah, the minority in this case consists of one manuscript. That's it. Uh -huh. 
There's also the old Latin manuscripts, but those are that's version evidence. As far as Greek manuscripts are concerned, there's only one, Codex D, Codex Beza, yeah, which is from about estimated to be from uh, about the year 400. I would put it a, a little later than that. Okay. But its text is Western, and in the Western text, you have sometimes have the phenomenon of what's called retro translation. It's like if the Greek text says. For instance, and Jesus said, whoever gives a cup of cold water in Jesus' name shall not lose his reward. Well, in, in a, if you look at closely at the Greek text, the word water is not there. It says, whoever gives a cup of cold or a cold cup mm. in my name. You're right. Now, it's implied, but it's not there. But in the Western text, they like to take what is implicit and turn it into what is explicit. Mm. And and so we see in the Western text, the word water is in the Greek text. It's just been added in. Mm -hmm. And in the Western text, the word for, for, for compassion, it, it's kind of like if, if a translator in modern times would it look into a passage and say, well, it could, we, we could say that the man is warm-hearted, or we could say the man is hot-headed. There's a little bit of nuance that right. is has, has some wiggle room. But right. uh, if you were to go to my blog, uh, the text of the gospels.com and and search using the search bar for Mark 141, I explained there why the NIV, which adopted the reading of Codex Vase, probably because they just didn't want the to to, to uh, crash into Ermin. Um, why the NIV is simply wrong. Um, the past the the word uh orgistes, or, or uh, was angry has a very poor basis right and and, and a case can be made that in an, an attempt to render the word compassionate this like a person who was mostly familiar with greek but was more familiar with latin with latin right. looking into that was trying to say jesus was deeply moved he was strongly moved could could render that as in Latin, angry. Oh, or, okay. Okay. So, yeah. but doing that kind of retro translation, working from Latin back into Greek, I think is what happened in, in that particular passage. So, the, the original text, I have no doubt, was Jesus was filled with compassion. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. It's, it's interesting because um, I wasn't aware that it was just one manuscript that had this alternative reading, but it sounds uh, so plausible that, well, this principle that if it's strange, it's more likely to be authentic. And the scenario that you've put forward is in one way um, more complicated than this kind of plausible intuition. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it's, it, it, it's more satisfying given the overall state of the uh, the textual evidence. Uh, the other um, small text that I wanted to ask you about was uh, one that James White has called into doubt. And I don't want to just rag on James White, um, uh, but he's called into doubt, I think, in part for theological reasons in certain contexts. Uh, when Jesus is on the cross in the Gospel of Luke, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Um, that's absent in certain uh, manuscripts. Um, what's your take on uh, the situation there? Uh, this is another passage where if you go on YouTube and look in my lecture series, 
I have one lecture that is just completely devoted to this particular question. And uh, also my, my blog, I've done the same thing. You can go to my blog and search for the search, search for Luke 23, 34, and see my explanation there. Uh, bas basically, what has happened is that some, some copyists, uh, they began thinking of this in terms of, well, wait a minute here. If Jesus asks God for forgiveness, uh, why 40 years later is the city of Jerusalem just destroyed? Uh, what kind of forgiveness is that? Mm -hmm. And so mainly because of that kind of objection, and I go into more detail both at the blog and in the video lecture, uh, but because of that kind of objection, they did not like uh, seeing that and, and having that. Uh, it's, it's as if you were to have a, a, a jibe pre-made against, against, against the church. Okay. So, so for more details about that one, uh, again, look at my blog and look at my video. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, so one final question before Mark 16. Um, what is, uh, if you've had um, uh, interaction with more mainstream textual critics, um, what's your perception of their response to the kind of arguments that you make? Do they just ignore them? Um, what, what do they say? Are they just not aware of them? Um, what's your take on the reception of these more traditional text critical views? Um, you know, it would kind of vary from one person to the other. And I, I'm kind of hesitant to make a judgment about right. the, the thoughts of each individual person. Yeah. In many cases, they probably have never encountered it. They probably consider some questions like this to be a done deal and right. look at something that would say it's not a done deal to be, oh, yeah, sure. That's what the, the wacky King James only is say. Oh, right. yeah, of course, to be Orthodox have a theological obligation to have this or that view. Right. I know that uh, Dan Wallace sometimes says that, you know, in some cases, people just have a brittle faith and they can't stand up to the fact that these passages aren't, aren't real. Where's that effect? Yeah. Um, I would love to think to, uh, to debate these subjects with Dan Wallace or with James White. The offer stands at any time in any venue. Bring it. Bring it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what would you say to someone, uh, uh, someone of faith, of uh, Christian faith, whose uh, ambition it is to be a text critic, uh, what would you want them to keep in mind as they enter into that discipline? I keep in mind that uh, it's, uh, it's a sacred task. We're dealing with the word of God and we, we want to get it right, just not just because uh, of uh, any theological or apologetic uh, approach that we might have, but for the sake of getting it right, we want to get it right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. So uh, let's get into Mark uh, chapter uh, 16. So uh, uh, you sent me a series of slides, so we're going to go through those and uh, have some interaction as we work through them. So I'm going to screen share. Uh, for my viewers, we did a test drive yesterday, and there was a little bit of lag, um, but uh, uh, we think it'll be better today. Um, because there was a bandwidth issue, but if there is lag, just keep in mind and bear uh, bear with us there. So I'm going to share. Here we go, and 
Now, most of us have probably seen in, in uh, Bibles such as the NIV or the Christian Standard Bible that they have here a note that says some of the earliest manuscripts conclude with 16.8. Now, I think when the NIV first came out back in 1984, the note said some of the earliest and best manuscripts and, and so forth. But here we have one of the most influential manuscripts, and it, it does end with 16.8. You can see here on the left side, uh, you can see in the second column there, the text of Mark in Greek ends at chapter 16, verse 8. But then there's this unusual blank column. And that blank space, if you combine this blank space underneath Mark 16.8 and add the space in the column, people would ask, is that blank space there for a reason? And I would say yes, the blank space is there because it's intended as memorial space. Memorial space is a phenomenon that you see in, in several manuscripts. In, in Codex B here, it's, it's after Mark 16.8. Usually this copyist of Codex B, when he ended a book, he would begin the next book in the ne very next column. He never skips a column in the New Testament. In fact, in the whole of the Bible, there are only three other blank spaces. And each one of those, contrary to what Dan Wallace wrote in his perspectives ch chapter, uh, contrary to what Wallace claimed, uh, those blank spaces are easily seen. The, the explanation is no, no mystery. Um, they occurred because of seams in the text. They happened at the end of Daniel, just before the New Testament begins. They happened before, before Psalms, because there the format switches from three columns per page to two columns per page. And obviously when the columns change, when the format changes like that, you would have lo some leftover space. And the, the third sp blank space in, in the Old Testament happens when, where scribes, uh, one scribe's work ends and the other scribe's work begins. It's, it's a meeting place of two scribes work. There's nothing like those things in the New Testament. In, in Mark 16, when Codex B ends, it ends with this blank space, which is unique, the only blank space like this in the New Testament. And the question, of course, is, is that enough room to fit Mark 16 verses 9-20? And you'll hear guys like uh, Dale Bach say, oh, no, there's not enough room, not enough room, can't be enough room. Well, here I have made, using not my own handwriting, but I picked other letters on the page and digitally pasted them into the blank space. And that's where verse nine begins. And there at the end, you see uh, verse 20 end, as well as the, the closing title for the book. So by a, scri a scribe who would to very slightly compress his lettering in this way could fit Mark 16, 9 to 20 into the blank space. And now, what what manuscript is this? Is it just called Codex B? Codex B is Codex Vaticanus. Okay, this is Vaticanus. Yeah, um, very important manuscript. And uh, when is Vaticanus from about? Vaticanus is probably from about the year 325. Okay, so I think it's, uh, it, it's 
one of those Bibles uh, that was commissioned by the emperor. Um, is, is it from that? Uh, um, it's from that same time period. Although I would argue that Codex B is not one of the ones that Eusebius made for Emperor Constantine. Okay. That he was commissioned for that. That's probably where the, where the Caesarean text comes from. Mm -hmm. But uh, in Codex B, in Matthew 27-49, Codex B, as well as Codex Sinaiticus, includes a reading that says Christ was speared and killed. Uh, well, Christ, Christ was speared before he died. Uh, now, you won't find this in modern translations, even though they follow Codex B very closely in other places. But in Codex B... Uh, that reading is there. It's not in Eusebius's the Eusebian canons that he made, and and so it doesn't appear to be connected to Eusebius's text directly. But Codex B Vaticanus though is very old. This is the oldest copy of the Gospel of Mark sixteen that we have now. Now Papyrus forty five is earlier, like a hundred years earlier. But it doesn't have chapter 16. Right. It, just, right. it goes up to like chapter 12 or so, and then it gets fragmented and disappears. But Codex, Codex B is you have at least some text of from uh, chapter 8, excuse me, chapter 16. So essentially, what you're arguing is that uh, the scribe, as he's producing this text, the fact that he leaves this space open in the page indicates that even though he hasn't written down verses 9 to 20, he's aware of its existence. Uh, yes, uh, Eusebius uh, commented on Mark 69, uh, used it repeatedly in, a, in his dialogue with, uh, with uh, or, or his uh, correspondence with uh, Maranum. Uh, so it was, a, it was known, a known passage at the time when Codex B was being made. And I would say that the copyist here shows, although he's writing using an, an exemplar, a master copy that does not have verses 9 to 20, he has recollected the verses from another copy. And so in, in memory of those, of, of that copy that he has seen but does not have direct access to, that's why he leaves this, this blank space. Uh, so we might get into this in. Um future slides, but uh, uh, why do you think that uh, it was left out of in some of these texts to begin with, if you want to answer that question now? Well, I think the copyists were very disciplined and, and the copyist of Codex B, Codex B uh, left it out because he followed his exemplar. He had that level of discipline. Uh, Codex Sinaiticus, uh, likewise, but Codex Sinaiticus, uh, that's on our next slide, and the scribe of Codex, Codex, uh, Codex Sinaiticus went a bit further than the, the copyist of Codex B. But uh, in, in Egypt, I believe that uh, they had a rule that said you should only perpetuate the text of the main author, the text that was considered to be secondary, whether it was in the copy or not, uh, should not be perpetuated because it's uh, technically uh, not from the main author. The and main so, author being, uh, what does that term mean in this context? Well, to them, it probably meant Peter. If they thought the, the second section was from another source, that's why they rejected it. 
Okay. I think that, that's what happened. But but I think this is that happened uh, long before Xenakis uh, and, and Vatikanus were made. Right, right. Um, so uh, this is your uh, second slide here. Yes. Here you see uh, there are really four pages in in uh, Codex Vaticanus. If you could uh, picture it like it like it like the church folds in, say it's a uh, front back here and front back there and fold it in the middle. That's what the last page of Mark is like in Codex Sinaiticus, and this is from about the year 350 or so. Okay. In Codex Sinaiticus, when we come to the end of Mark, we don't have the 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 pages that were made by the main copyist of Mark. Uh, we have replacement pages. So that's one thing to keep in mind. It's unfortunately not noted in the in the Nestle Allen text that th these are replacement pages. It probably should be. But if you look at these pages in detail, you can see that something something unusual happened to the main copyist pages to require them to be rewritten, because on his first the on the first page, we see in the first three columns he's writing at about the rate of 630, 650, somewhere there. That's his usual rate. But then it jumps to 707. Then on the next page, it goes a little less than that to all, all about 600 per page. And the same on the next page. But on these last six columns, that's what I want to focus on here for now, you see that beginning in loop, it jumps from, 600, from about 630 to 680, 700, 680 again, 725, and 600, about 680 again. So in Luke, he's obviously drastically compressing his lettering. Uh, the, the main copyist, it appears, had made some kind of terrible mistake in the text of Luke, and that is why the proofreader, the supervisor of the manuscript making, decided these pages can't stand, they need to be redone. And so he began to redo them, but he realized the difficulty was not gonna be in the text of Mark. The difficulty was gonna be in Luke where the main copies had left something out, probably uh, a, a segment of Luke chapter one, consisting of a, a little bit less than 400 words, or 400 letters. Well, um, after he gets done making the text of Luke, because that's where the, the difficulty is, he has to make it so it, it will all fit into the new pages. And also it will line up. So the last page on his page will line up with the first page of Luke that's being made by the main copies around Luke 156. After he gets done with those six columns, then he goes back to begin writing Mark, and Mark, he thinks, will not be any problems, so he takes it easy at first. But for some reason, and this is where we have to be a little bit, little bit telepathic, we don't really know for sure what he was thinking. But in the, the third column, he begins to write at a very compressed rate. It jumps to 707 letters. But then when he turns the page, it probably dawns him, wait a minute, I just wrote in compressed lettering. Well, instead of start over, he says, I'll just stretch out my lettering from this point on. And so he goes at a little stretched out rate all through the second page and all through most of 
the third page. But when he gets to, to the third page, he realizes he, he makes a mistake when he's writing Mark 16, verse 1. And he leaves out, the character, the proofreader, he leaves out a little bit of Mark 16.1, a, a really a substantial part of Mark 16.1. And if you continue to write Mark 6.16 at his usual rate of letters, he would finish the column and be done. He'd reach Mark 16.8 and that would be it. And he would be left with the entire blank column in his column, column number 10. But he doesn't want to leave a blank column. And so, because he doesn't want to leave a blank column, he really stretches out his lettering in here in column nine, uh, very drastically. At one point, when he's writing out the name of Jesus, now usually ascribes out of, out of, out of uh, devotion, uh, out of piety, would uh, compress the name Jesus. This is a normal feature in practically all manuscripts. But here, uh, the scribe wrote it out in full simply to take up space. And after stretching out his lettering in this way, he managed to get 37 more letters to put in column 10. And that's why we have column 10 with letters in it instead of a blank column. But you can see by making this effort to stretch, stretch you into column 10, and also by, by emphatically making his uh, decoration at the end of the text very emphatic. Um, it, it's it's more, much more emphatic than we see him making, making this decoration elsewhere. Uh, when he does this, you can see that he definitely wants to make it appear that there's no need for a blank column. In other words, he's got Mark 16, 9 to 20 on his mind, even though you don't see it in his text, by making the letters be stretched out and by making his decoration so emphatic at the end of Mark 16, verse 8, before the closing title. So that's what we see in uh, Codex Sinaiticus. So both Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, even though they don't have um, explicit attestation to 16, 9 to 20, in a way, um, their witnesses to its um, uh, primitive nature, uh, to its its presence and uh, the widespread awareness of its presence, is your argument? Uh, uh, yes, uh, and this isn't something that I came up with. Uh, John 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 Gwynn, uh, back in the 1800s, uh, said the same thing. Uh, both the scribe of Vaticanus and the scribe of uh, the corrector of Codex Sinaiticus uh, showed their their awareness of it, even even though they don't actually have the verses, those 12 verses. Uh, and both of these are Alexandrian um, manuscripts, so they come from the same. Oh, oh yes, these will be the, the top two manuscripts that are used in the Nestle text. Uh, the top two used by Hort in, in Hort's compilation back in 1881, um, consider Hort to be far superior to, to anything else. And, and for my viewers, um, what's the significance of um, uh, Nestle Allen and, and Westcott Hort text? What's um... well, uh, Nestle Allen is the basis for most versions today. Uh, most of them, like the NIV, the NLT, the ESV, the Holman Christian Standard, or the, the just the Christian Standard, uh, most of those versions are based directly 
and, and they'll say this up front in their introductions, uh, are based on the work of Nestle Allen. Uh, the uh, Nestle Allen text, in turn, is based on, primarily on West Cotton Horse 1881 compilation. Uh, they're not very different. Uh, again, you can go to my blog and I look at the differences. The differences are like eight, 800 words between, between 1881 and 2011. And uh, uh, are there any um, English translations other than the King James um, that you would recommend that are based on a different textual tradition? Um, the, the New King James is based on the, the textual receptus Mm -hmm. And the MEV uh, modern English version is based on the, te the texture stuff as, as well in the, in the New Testament. Um, one that is not is the uh, e the uh, Eastern Orthodox, uh, which is not well known as a version in English in the in America, but it ought to be. Uh, it's uh, it's it's very good. I wouldn't agree with every decision of the editors, but uh, it's much close to what the real traditional text is like than the King James. Uh, also, uh, some Lutherans not long ago made, made a trans translation. Um, uh, the Evangelical uh, Heritage Version. And it, although it's not as Byzantine as, as I would like it to be, uh, it takes the Byzantine tradition seriously. And it happens to include uh, fully uh, both Mark 16, 9 to 20, and the story of the woman caught in an adultery. So that was the uh, Eastern Orthodox New Testament? They... Yes, the East, Eastern Orthodox New Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, it's based on the Septuagint, right. but the New Testament is, is uh, based on the uh, patristic text uh, first published in 1904. Then again in 1912, the Antonin Yadis text. Okay. Uh, so uh, what do we have here? Uh, this is uh, a page of manuscript uh, number 304. Uh, this has uh, Mark 16, 8 ending, and it doesn't resume from, from there. If you want to zoom in a little bit, I can show you exactly where Mark 16, 8 ends. They are about the about the eight, about the seventh line down. The 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 dot. Uh, that is where Mark sixteen eight ends. All the rest of this material is is commentary. But then the commentary stops. And at one, at one point you have a little note here. It's been erased or it's been smudged over. Originally it said something that would be like saying, uh, "As a travel as a travel looks upon his homeland, so does a scribe." look at the end of the book and then it stops and there's the rest of the page is torn out but it was probably nothing but the margin uh, nothing there and it, it so it continues with the uh, commentary after after mark 16 8 and then it doesn't pick up the text again now this is a manuscript from about about 1100 or so so it's not not particularly old and most of the text that's being cited in the manuscript is Byzantine. So uh, why it ends at Mark 16.8, why it doesn't continue after that is an intriguing question. But one point to see is that once you've seen Codex Vaticanus, 
and Codex Sinaiticus and Manuscript 204, you have seen the entire sum in the note, those footnotes that say some manuscripts conclude with 168. Those are the only three manuscripts in Greek that do so. The only three manuscripts that end at 16.8. Yes. And so there, there are no um, other Alexandrian witnesses against uh, uh, the long ending of Mark besides Vaticanus. Well, there certainly are, yes. Uh, but they're not in Greek. Oh, right, right, sure. Uh, let's get to the. Sorry, my mouse is jumping around. That's okay. Uh, for, for instance, in Codex C, which I think we'll see here in a minute. Uh, Codex C is, is a major manuscript. It, it's a, what's called a flimsis, which means that it's been scraped over. Sometimes when copies were making manuscripts and needed, needed parchment, they took their parchment, not, not straight from the cow, but from old books they no longer needed. They might think that there's an excess of this book, we don't need it anymore, or this book is in a language we don't read anymore. And so they would simply scrape off the ink to reuse the parchment. And that's what they did in the case of Codex C. It was a Bible at first, and when it was scraped away and reused, they put on the, the sermons of Ephraim Cyrus, an important writer from the middle of the 300s. But uh, if you will get, get a copy of the, of the Codex and digitally remove the upper writing, you can still see the lower writing pretty well. And that's what I've done here. You see the pages as they appear on there on the left, but on the right, you can see where I have digitally removed the upper writing, uh, most of it. And so you can see clearly the older writing on this particular page. And what you see there is Mark 16, 14 through 20. So in Codex C, a very important and, and the early manuscripts, uh, it has Mark 16, 14 through 20, implying that the, the entire passage was there when this was in pristine condition. The entire passage was there. Uh, sorry, I missed the last part of what you said. When it was in pristine condition, before oh, right. it was reused and recycled to make room for the summons of Ephraim, uh, Codex C had all of Mark 16, 19, 20. And Codex C is, uh, is what? What manuscript? Uh, Codex Ephraim Rescriptus is its name. It's just been known as Codex C. Okay. And, and when does it date from? Uh, pretty early, around uh, the 400s, but it, because it's not signed and sealed, or uh, doesn't, doesn't have a colophon on it, uh, we pretty much have to, uh, have to kind of estimate. But, uh, but, but generally, the, the 400s, maybe, maybe the later 400s, maybe, maybe early, earlier. But uh, that, that, that's the range that it has. Okay. This is Codex D. Uh, yes, Codex D is interesting because it's a copy of the Western text. The Western text is known for its many uh, uh, slight expansions. For instance, when, when the regular text says Jesus, uh, Codex D might expand it and say the Lord Jesus or Jesus Christ. This little uh, elaborations like that are typical of the Western text. 
but the Western text was used in very early period. It didn't take long for those elaborations to, to come about. Mm -hmm. uh, Ivanaeus and Tertullian uh, and other early Latin writers uh, tend to use the Western text. Well, here in Codex D, uh, even Codex D is, is kind of beat up. Uh, it has Mark 16, 6, 6 to 15a, and you can see there, I, I put a little marker where verse 9 begins. So when you, if you're reading, for instance, the, the message that, that uh, is put out in, in the message hyper, the message hyper paraphrase, uh, the, the message hyper paraphrase has a, has a footnote that says Mark 16, 9 to 20 is only in the later manuscripts. Uh, that footnote should be withdrawn. The publishers should apologize because obviously in, in Codex Beza, which Erwin, by the way, speaking about Erwin, has described as one of our earliest manuscripts. And it's right there. So when we look at Codex C and we look at Codex, Codex D, we see it very early. These are early forms of the text. Also, you can, you can go to see also in Codex W, it's there. Mm -hmm. In Codex W, not only is it there, but Codex W has a, a bit more between verses 14 and 15. Is that is that your next slide, Codex W? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, uh, Codex got... W was discovered in about 1906, and and uh, Codex W uh, made 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 some waves because uh, this reading that that it attests to in Codex W, it was called the the man who bought Codex W was named Charles Freer. He's got a great gallery in Washington, D.C. Uh, and in his honor, this ex expansion was called the Freologion between verses 14 and verses 15. Now, if you've read the Net Bible, the Net Bible tries to describe this as if it's a different ending. But as you can see, if you actually look at the manuscript Plain as Day, and if you look at Jerome's citation of it as Plain as Day in, in Latin, um, it's not a different ending and could never be. It's simply an, an interpolation between verse, verse 14 and verse 15. Here's where verse 14 stops. Here's where verse 15 starts. But Mark 16, 9 through 20 is still there. Mark 69 is there and all the way through verse 20, it's all there. Uh, so the, it's calling the Phrygian a different ending is simply absurd. It should never be called a different ending because you can look at it plain as day, it doesn't end. Uh, verses 15 through 20 appear after it. Is this an Alexandrian uh, text? Uh, actually, Codex W is what we call a block mixed manuscript. In Matthew, it is very, very Byzantine, but in, in other parts of the book, it changes. In, in part of Luke, it looks very Alexandrian. But in another part of Luke, Luke, it looks very Byzantine. So, uh, about, so some folks think, I think that uh, Kenyon, way back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, I think Kenyon uh, thought that the uh, mixture in different parts of Codex W, having it be so Byzantine here and so Alexander there, Kenyon thought that maybe, and, and this is just theoretical, uh, we don't have videotape, he thought that perhaps somebody took a copy that the Romans had destroyed and salvaged from Potter here 
and put it together with part of a different manuscript in, in a different section. So that explains perhaps why Codex W has these parts of it that are Byzantine and parts that are Alexandrian and parts that look like something else entirely in, in Mark. What do you think about the idea? Um, could it reflect uh, early attempts at textual criticism on the part of the scribes themselves in that tradition? What do you think of that, that idea? I don't think so. I, um, there's, there's one part, it, it's really a more, more of a complex question than it sounds, as, more, more complex than it sounds. There is part of Mark, me, part of Codex W, as being of John, where there is a supplement portion. In other words, it's not as old, maybe, or not, not from the same source as the, the rest of the manuscript. And the, the supplement portion might be uh, more, more textually minded, but I don't think that the main portion of Codex W is. Uh, I just wanted to say, it's, it's kind of, given what you said about the message, um, it's ironic, sometimes you hear the analogy uh, about the uh, pre-written gospel traditions, and then sometimes about the transmission of the manuscripts themselves, the analogy between um, transmitting these stories about Jesus and a game of telephone. But it almost seems to me that the real game of telephone is these notations that get put on our English translations. It begins with some of our earliest manuscripts lack Mark 16, 9 to 20. Then it becomes all of our earliest best in manuscripts uh, best manuscripts lack Mark 16, 9 to 20, and eventually it becomes there's no reliable witness to Mark 16, 9 to 20 at all. Um, and what what is the interpolation here? Is this um, is that the shorter long ending of Mark, the one with the sacred and perishable message of eternal salvation, or is it something else? Uh, this is the true logion. Um, the easy way to answer the question is simply to read it. And um, I'll just show you, Met Metzger translates this pretty, pretty well in his textual commentary. And it says, uh, basically it says uh, there, uh, and they excuse themselves, that is the apostles. They excuse themselves saying, this age of lawlessness and unbelief is under Satan who does not allow the truth and power of God to prevail over the unclean things of the spirits. Therefore, reveal thy righteousness now, thus they spoke to Christ. And Christ replied to them, the term of years of Satan's power has been fulfilled, but other terrible things draw near. And for those who have sinned, I was delivered over to death, so that they may return to the truth and sin no more in order that they may inherit the spiritual and incorruptible glory of righteousness which is in heaven. And that's as far as it gets before it resumes with the text of verse 15. Uh, it's uh, very, very much unlike the kind of vocabulary that, that Mark uses. Right, yeah. But that's uh, Codex W. Now, uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to look at some of those uh, some some misinformation in in various footnotes uh, a bit later. Yeah. But uh, let's let's go ahead and look at the family one note and and see how a particular group of manuscripts treats Mark sixteen nine to twenty because what we've always just seen now uh, you've always seen the three manuscripts in Greek in which Mark ends at sixteen eight. Let's proceed. 
Do you see we have slide seven up? Coming up shortly. With 1582. Uh, yes, yes, here you see. Uh, th these are uh, pages from, for instance, manuscript 1582, which is a, a major manuscript, even, even though it's not old, um, it's a member of family one. And combined with number one, their testimonies together when they agree, uh, that is thought to reflect a much older exemplar, probably from the 400s. In members of family one, you see these little notes here. And if you were to, to translate that note in English, the note says, in some of the copies, the evangelist work is finished here. And so do Eusebius Pamphilius canons. But in many, this also appears. And you might want to ask, who is Eusebius Pamphili? Well, it's just another way to refer to Eusebius of Caesarea. Uh, his mentor was named Pamphilus. And so Eusebius Pamphili uh, is another way to refer to him. And referring to his canons refers to the, the cross-reference chart that he made for the four gospels. He made a, a chart of, well, a set of 10 charts which describe the cross-reference passages in the four gospels. First, you have the what's in all four, and then you have different different charts which describe what's in, what's in these three, and then what's in three, 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 and you work down to what's in two of them, and then finally, uh, the tenth chart is watch in just one. Well, his chart is in very many manuscripts, and so that's what's being referred to here. But the note continues and goes on to say, but in many, this also appears. Now, I don't think Metzger ever emphasized this part of the note. Uh, he probably should have when it says, but in many, this also appears before he presents verses 9 to 20. In manuscripts 15 and 22, uh, 1192 and 1210, which, which are kind of related to family family one, but not as strong members as, as 1582 and number one. It just says in some of the copies, the gospel is completed here, but in many, this also appears. It's the same note, but in the later copies, the Eusebius the Eusebian canons are simply not mentioned. Probably by the time the, the note is, comes up, when these copies are made, uh, the Eusebian canons have already been expanded to include verses 9 through 20. In fact, even, even in manuscript uh, 1, you can see there, and in manuscript 1582, you can also see there that the, the uh, section numbers appear beside uh, Mark 16, 9. And they continue on. If you had a bigger picture of the page, you could you could see see other section numbers farther down in Mark 16, 9-20. So these notes are not some random writers uh, saying this, but they are all simply perpetuating what was what all the copyists had written in about the 400s. So it's a it's a witness to the the general state of the text. At that period of time. Yes, but they're not randomly appearing witnesses. These are all related manuscripts. Okay. They related not, not just by having this note, but they're related in other ways with other readings. Okay. Now, now there's one manuscript which hardly gets any press that I want to just look at briefly. 
Is that that's the, a, a, a lectionary 846. Shoot, I just, uh, there we go. Uh, nope, that's not it. This lectionary 846? Nope, that's lectionary 1602. Uh, there we go. Okay. Yeah, okay. that's it. A lectionary 846 is, was found in Egypt. Now, notice that it has uh, Mark 16, 19-20. Even though it's a lecturer, it includes this, this passage. It's, it's one of the passages that was that often appear in lectionaries as one of the 11 Heothena. Uh, I hope I'm saying that right. But, uh, but it's there plain as day. And you can see that the rubric is shown to be, this is uh, from, the, the, from the book of Mark. And so this is from the 800s. And Daryl Bach has said that the Byzantine lectionaries, the early Byzantine lectionaries, don't have Mark 69 to 20. Uh, that is wrong um, because you can look at them and find Mark 69 to 20. And here is an example uh, right there, lectionary 846. And, and it's, not, it's not the only one, but you can look in the lectionaries and see that Bach is wrong. and is there how, how is it that um you have people of such scholarly eminence and you know by all appearances goodwill say things which are not wrong in the sense that they've misinterpreted a complex network of data but just flat factually plainly wrong how does that happen um I wouldn't rather not rather not try to read their minds because it would probably sound like an accusation if I did. Yeah. Or it would sound like I'm accusing somebody of incompetence. I would rather not go in that direction. But I would simply say your claim is false and needs to be corrected. Yeah, yeah. So so, so uh I can't. I I'm not that good at telepathy. I would rather simply have them see, uh, simply correct correct what you claimed because yeah. it's not right. But uh, there's one very important statement that is in the works of Irenaeus. Now Irenaeus was a patrician writer earlier than any of our manuscripts. He worked in the 100s, and not only did he work in the 100s, but he began his career or he began his life in Asia Minor. And then he moved to what is now France, the city of Lugdunum, which is now Lyon. But he also uh, visited Rome. So this is, was a, a well-traveled individual. And in Codex 1582, in the margin, uh, beside Mark 16.8, there's a note. It says, Irenaeus, who was near the time of the apostles in his work against heresies in book three, cites this for Mark. Now we have book three of against heresies, but it's in Latin, what, what has survived. But this note is in Greek, referring to the Greek text, and not only in 1582, but also in manuscript 72, we have the same note. So just like the, the one note in family one that we saw earlier, uh, this is echoing a much earlier writer, probably somebody around the 400s. Irenaeus, here's what Irenaeus says in Against Heresies. Also, towards the conclusion of his gospel, Mark says, So then, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, 
He was received up into heaven and sits on the right hand of God. That's Irenaeus quoting from what he was reading in the Gospel of Mark around the year 180. Uh, that's our earliest witness of an explicit quotation. Uh, Irenaeus is explicit. There are others that are implicit, and hopefully we'll, we'll look into them. But I want to hammer home at this point. Why don't the footnote writers mention Irenaeus? Why are they trying to, if they're trying to hide something, uh, there again, I don't want to say they're trying to hide something, but they're doing a very good job of not bringing up Irenaeus when it would be so easy to do. Okay, on to the next slide. I mean, uh, it, it's an interesting point um, that I think Richard Baucom, he brings it up in the context of um, the historical authenticity of the early Jesus traditions, uh, that early Christianity was a remarkably well-networked um, uh, society. Um, the churches simply did not exist in these little micro, uh, uh, micro societies of their own detached from all the others, uh, but they were all tied together. Um, and I think it's interesting how that uh, has implications in this, this context as well. Uh, so next slide. Yeah. Um, Bruce Metzger is famous for saying, Clement of Alexander and Origins show no knowledge of the existence of these verses. Um, that little sentence has been spread far and wide. Uh, Norman Geisler has recycled it. Many others have recycled it. But I want to take just, just a moment to say, hmm. How much of Mark did Clement actually use? Well, if we look at Clement's extant writings and go through them, and, and uh, Carl Kozart has done uh, extensive analysis, we see that out of 626 verses outside chapter 10, Clement used two verses in Greek. In Mark 8, 8.38, he used it clearly. And in Mark 9.39, excuse me, Mark 9.29, he probably uses it. And in compasses of Clement that are not preserved in Greek, he appears to use a few more verses. But outside chapter 10, he really uses chapter 10 a lot, a lot in the composition called Who is the Rich Man Who Shall Be Saved? Uh, he, he mangles its text quite a bit, but he uses it as a thing to do. But outside of that, outside of chapter 10, he uses no more than eight verses. So you, you could basically say that up till chapter eight, Mark is not used. Chapter 11 and 12, not used. Chapter 15 and 16, not used. In other words, he's using 1.3% of Mark besides chapter 10. Uh, that's not the basis on which to make extrapolations. Many people look at that and say, oh, well, Clement doesn't use Mark 16, 19, 20. That must mean that it wasn't in his manuscript. Um, that is a downright silly extrapolation to make, even though that seems to be the extra, kind of extrapolation that Messer hopes that his readers will, will make. Um, it's, it's just silly. It's simply an argument from, from silence. Yeah, and, and so many of these arguments uh, sound compelling at first glance, and then in larger context, they appear, as you said, just kind of incomprehensibly silly. Um, another example 
uh, which I remember being struck by in Lund's book, um, was the argument that there's all of these unique words that Mark doesn't use uh, other than in 16, 9 to 20, which sounds really powerful until you realize that most of these words are words which pertain to the resurrection narrative and wouldn't make sense outside of the narrative of the resurrection. So at first glance, um, the argument sounds uh, like a knockdown, but then with a larger context, it, it doesn't really have legs. Uh... Well, you, you can see how, how some commentators are treating the text. Uh, Norman, Norman Geisler, the late apologist said, and as far as I know, this has never been corrected. He claimed that verses 9 to 20 are lacking in many of the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. Uh, which is false. It's locking in, in three Greek manuscripts in total. Larry O. Richards said in many ancient Greek manuscripts, Mark's Gospel ends at, at 8, 68. Again, false. Wilfred Harrington was a commentator who said that Mark 16, 19, 20 is omitted in very many Greek manuscripts of the Gospel. False. Uh, William Berkeley well, just one one generation past his time, but he was a very influential commentator. He wrote that verses 9 to 20 are not in any of the great early manuscripts. Uh, apparently to Barclay, uh, the only great early manuscripts were Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, because in all the other ancient manuscripts of Mark that have, uh, that have, that have the Gospel of Mark in Greek, uh, verses 9 to 20, are there, or at least enough of Mark 16, is there to show that when the manuscript was pristine, uh, it was all there. Barclay claims that it's only later and in inferior manuscripts with, which contain them. Uh, Barclay, when, when Barclay made this, this mistake, I think that's a lot of the reason why later writers after Barclay uh, thought that they could say that too, and they did. And that's where we get the footnotes in the NIV. That's where we get the footnotes in the C in the ESV. But uh, in real life, uh, Vaticanus and and Sinaiticus and 304 are the only Greek manuscripts that don't have Mark 16, 20 in cases where it wasn't because was not not there because of uh, some some special phenomenon that happened to the manuscript. Uh, David Ewart, another of the commentators, said all major manuscripts in this gospel of 16.8. And Bart Ehrman said, in the early Middle Ages, scribes added Mark 16.9-20. Uh, Dr. Ehrman, will you please tell me how scribes uh, went from the early Middle Ages and traveled back in time to the time of Irenaeus? Uh, I would like to know. Um, Bart Ehrman should really apologize to his listeners for saying this because it's a silly claim. Yeah, I'm reminded of uh, uh, certain memes that I've seen circulating around Facebook uh, that have this incredible sense of assurance about them saying the Gospels were written centuries after the life of Jesus. I mean, it's, it's, not, a, uh, it's not a small uh, error to make in terms of time. So that, that's, that's remarkable. Uh, here we have the- uh, yeah, we, also, we also see some, some Bible, Bible footnotes are also um, 
far from reliable. As I've mentioned already, the message says that Mark 16, 19, 20 is contained only in later manuscripts. It's in Codex D, it's, it's in Codex C, it's in Codex W, those are early manuscripts. In the Jerusalem Bible, published in 1968, it says many manuscripts omit verses 9 through 20. In the ESV, uh, in the 2010 edition, said that some manuscripts in the book with 16.8, others include verses 9 through 20 immediately after verse 8. Now, now notice, notice, notice how vague the wording is here. Notice this. Some manuscripts in the book with 16.8, as far as Greek manuscripts are concerned, that some means three. Others include verses 9 through 20 immediately after verse 8. A few manuscripts insert additional material after verse 14. Now, that is simply false. There's only one manuscript that does so. We, we've already seen it. Codex W does this. And then continues on with verses 15 through 20. One Latin manuscript, and then they're referring to a Codex Babiensis here, inserts additional material, adds after verse 8, the following, and this is the shorter ending, uh, what's known as the shorter ending. Uh, but they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told. And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Other manuscripts in include, include the same wording after verse 8. And then continue with verses 9 to 20. Now, in 2013, this note was slightly changed, and instead of a few manuscripts, it now says at least one manuscript inserts. But there's no reason for this that, that at least uh, it simply is one manuscript, Codex W. That's the only manuscript we have that has the Philologion. In, in, in with the Latin on Greek, Jerome refers to it in, in Latin, but the only manuscript we have that that actually has it is Codex, Codex W. Yeah. So there's no reason to be vague about it. But And, and uh, these footnotes seem designed to point the reader away from, from accepting verses 9 to 20 because they could just as easily say three manuscripts in the book with 68, one manuscript ends the book with additional material between verses 14 and 15, and instead of saying that other manuscripts have the shorter ending between verses eight and nine, it could say six. Meanwhile, the number of manuscripts that include verses nine to 20 after verse eight, instead of saying some or others, they could say, if they wanted to, 1,643. Again, 1,643. And they I could. I think one of the things that really gets left out of these footnotes is the fact that all or most all of these textual anomalies are taking place in a single um, stream of manuscript tradition, uh, that the distribution of anomalies is not just one that has a temporal significance. That is, it's not just that the earliest manuscripts, uh, in the sense of the three you mentioned, lack the long ending of Mark. Uh, it's that Alexandrian early manuscripts lack the long ending of Mark, uh, which is at least as significant 
as the fact that they're the earliest manuscripts, just because they're the earliest manuscripts, well, the earliest ones happen to come from the same textual family. Um, and, and, and I've never, I don't remember ever coming across any kind of discussion of that in, uh, in these footnotes. And uh, as you know, unique to John Aid and uh, Mark 16, you not only have the footnote, you've got the big scary brackets. You know, this put in the brackets, there's the space. Uh, and, and I remember um, from my earliest Bible reading days being kind of uh, thrown off by that. Um, and getting exactly the impression that, that you mentioned that this is really dubious stuff. Well, that, that's the impression that, that I think, again, I can't read their minds, but I think that that's the impression that the footnote writers, that those footnotes were designed to convey. And that's the reason why they're not specific. That's the reason why they're vague with some others, where in terms of quantity, it's three versus 1,600, more than that. But I'd like to take a look now to see what kind of Patrician writers used material from Mark, from Mark 69 to 20. Do we only have it being used by later writers like Bernardi Claveau and Thomas Aquinas? Uh, no, actually from the days of the Roman Empire, that's every writer above this line, we have in the Epistula Apostolorum, uh, it appears that the writer of Epistula Apostolorum was familiar with the narrative that we see in Mark 16, 20. Now, he doesn't quote Mark, Mark 16, 19-20, but he shows evidence that he's familiar with that material. Also, Justin Martyr in First Apology does not specifically quote from, from Mark 16, 20, because Justin hardly ever makes a specific quote, but Justin Martyr using a, a gospel's harmony of, Ma of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a, synopt a synoptic harmony, uh, he quotes what appears to be Mark, the contents of Mark 16:19-20, using the same words in the same cluster. They're not in the same order, but it very much appears that Justin Martyr is familiar with Mark 16:20. Also, Tatian, around the year 172, uh, made the diatestron, and if you know what the diatestron is, uh, you know that it was a combination of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all smooshed together to make one continuous narrative. So you're not always flipping from one page to another to find out the full story. You, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John combined in the diatestron. Well, in the uh, Arabic diatestron, uh, patient was later on considered a heretic, and so his work has not survived in, in its original form. But in Arabic, the Arabic version of the Diatestron was based on a Syriac text. That Syriac text was in part uh, conformed to the text of the Peshitta. And so the way to tell if the Arabic Diatestron uh, is accurate, accurately representing the text of Tatian, you have to combine, you have to compare uh, what is an Eastern witnesses to the Diatestron, compare them to a different branch in the Western witnesses to the Diatestron. Well, conveniently, we have a good and, and relatively early representative of the Diatestron in what is called Codex Flodensis. And we, we can compare in Codex Flodensis, which is a Latin text, 
we look at how it has arranged the text of Mark 16:9-20, and we compare that to the Arabic text, we see that they correspond very closely. And we also see in the writings of, of later writers, such as Akrat and, uh, and um, let's get away from this for a second. Oh, oh the Doctrine of Badai. Uh, when we see those writings, and we also see uh, uh, Ephraim, of Cyber, uh, Ephraim, the Syrian, uh, making his, his commentary on the on Badai Shastron, those later writers also those later writers also use Mark 16:9-20 when they're using the Diatessaron. So there's Tatian as well. We've already seen the reference in Irenaeus. Tertullian, um, even though you have to compare Tertullian's work in detail, uh, probably more time than we have to today. But cumulative, uh, I think there's enough evidence to say Tertullian was also familiar with the, with the Mark 16:9-20. Hippolytus, as well as Michael, Michael Holmes has stated, uh, Hippolytus uh, used Mark 16.9.20. In the early writing from the 200s called the Didascalia Apostolorum, uh, material from Mark 16.9.20 is used. Uh, Vincentius uses it at the Seventh Council of, of uh, Carthage in about the year uh, 257. Also, in, uh, and I'm just going to kind of just kind of go through this. Please, uh, if, if you have a question about any specific one, uh, please ask it. In uh, Diraphis Mate, in the old Latin Capitulum, including the CY form, in the writings of Hierocles, uh, Hierocles was not a Christian. I mean, this is a pagan writer. Uh, he was a student of Porphyry, and he recycled a lot of Porphyry's works. And in one of his, st his statements, he says, uh, if you Christians really wanted to see who which who has the most faith and who's most qualified to be bishop, uh, don't fight it out with theological works. Just just go ahead and follow the instructions that you have in the Gospels, where it says about drinking poison. The one that drinks the most poison should be your bishop. As Hierocles makes a little jab and shows that he his text of Mark had Mark 16, 19, 20. After that, the, the Persian sage is also called Afrahates. Uh, Afrahat used it in his demonstration one. Uh, a now Fortunatianus is not usually cited. His commentary has only recently come to light. But in that commentary, he says that uh, Mark deserves the, the image of the, the eagle. And when he talks about the images, he's talking about the, the lion, the man, and the eagle and the ox, uh, those images. You, you'll see, can, sometimes you can see those on the frontispiece of you've got a really old King James, uh, but those were well known in the early church. Well, first John says that Mark deserves the eagle, uh, usually the eagle goes to John, and Mark is the lion. But first John says that Mark deserves the eagle because he speaks about the ascension of Christ. And that implies two things. First, that Porcianus' text of Luke didn't mention the ascension. In other words, it's a Western text. But also, that his text of Mark did include verses 9 through 20, because that's the, that's the only place where the ascension is mentioned. Also, in Marinus, uh, Marinus wrote to Eusebius of Caesarea and said, hey, uh, how do you harmonize 
what, what, what we know as Matthew 28.2 with what we know as Mark 69. And so in, you can see from the question that Aaron had asked, it was in his text of Mark. You see, was of Caesarea answered, and usually his answer is only known from Metzger. And Metzger, unfortunately, only, only presented uh, snippets of Eusebius of Caesarea. Now, in our own day, we're, we're much better situated because uh, Roger Pierce, uh, one of the most underrated scholars, scholars of all time, uh, Roger Pierce has published the complete text of Eusebius of Caesarea's response to Marius, and you can download it for free online. Just uh, do a quick search for Eusebius of Caesarea Gospel Problems and Solutions, and you can find, find his, the full text of what he wrote to Marinus. And there's much more to it than those, those little snippets that, that Metzger presented. Uh, Eusebius of Caesarea, in another part of his response to Marinus, uh, quotes Mark 69 again, attributing it to what's found in some copies. But again, in another place, he quotes Mark 69 and doesn't even bother saying in some copies. He just says, this is what Mark says. Also, in the, the Philologion, uh, which we've already covered, um, Metzger said that uh, that text is a, well, I'll, I'll read you from what Metzger says again. He says, the Philologion is probably the work of a second or third century scribe who wished to soften the severe condemnation of the eleven in 1614. Well, if Metzger is right, then that's yet one more a witness to Mark 16, 9-20. Ephraim Cyrus, writing in about the year 363, wrote his commentary on the Dietrichstrand, and you can look there and see snippets parts of Mark 16, 9-20 that UCB is used. In about the year 381, uh, Apostolic Constitutions was written. It's a composite work using earlier sources, uh, like, like Hippolytus' writings. But in Apostolic Constitutions, there's plainly a use drawn from Mark 16, 19-20. Uh, maybe Didymus used it as well in his writing, De Trinitate. Uh, there's some question about that. But if it's not Didymus, then it's somebody a lot like Didymus. Epiphanius also uses material from Mark 16, 19-20. Uh, the, the translator Chromatius uses it as well. Uh, Macarius Magnes, who's writing about the year 410 or 405, he's responding to Hierocles, but he doesn't know that he's responding to Hierocles. Uh, he's responding to what he thinks is some work, some, some pagan has used it, possibly a porphyry, or maybe it's a work that Hierocles is recycling, but Macarius Magnes is using it and fully accepts it. Uh, John Chrysostom, again, in Chrysostom's case, it's, it's cumulative. You have to look uh, here and there to see it. But Chrysostom also appears to use material from, from Mark 16, 19-20. Also, the work called Doctrine of a Die plainly uses it. A writer named Marius Mercator just a little later uses it. Uh, uh, in uh, the early 400s, Marcus Aramidi uses it. According to, according to uh, Cyril of Alexandria, uh, Nestorius uh, uh, used it. Leo the Great quotes it in one of his writings. Also, as far away as, as Ireland, 
you can look into the writings of St. Patrick and see that in his old Latin text, it was there in Ireland. Meanwhile, in Ravenna, Italy, uh, slightly later, Peter Chrysologus also used it. So you have all these, all these writers and all these compositions uh, using material from Mark 16, 9 to 20. So there is no question about whether or not it was widely used in the early church. It very plainly was. Yeah, and, and, and most of these writers seem to uh, lie outside of the Middle Ages that uh, uh, Bart Ehrman mentioned in the quotation that you well, provided. Well, well, again, above these line, above this line, all these writers above this line are from the days of the Roman Empire. All these writers are earlier than the year 486. Only slightly later than 486, in other words, still, oh, really early, but slightly later than this is Victor of Antioch, who writes in his, in his kind of, kind of a, a collection of other writers, other writers' writings, but he has his own comments here and there. And Victor says that he, uh, he kind of interacts with Eusebius, Eusebius's comments, where Eusebius says to Marinus, now a person could say, a person can handle this harmonization difficulty in two ways. You can handle it one way by saying that it's not in all the copies. You could say that uh, in, in the best copies or the most accurate copies is not there. You could say that in most of the copies is not there. But then you see what it says that on the other hand, a different way to handle it would be to say a more pious person would, would have an approach of saying we shouldn't reject either writing, but receive them both and simply pause in Mark, say, rising and then the comma or pause as he was rising on the first day of the week jesus appeared to mary magdalene and usually we said you see this is the way to solve the harmonization difficulty you could accept the passage and simply say it refers to the time of jesus writing and uh, early in the morning on the first day of the week refers to the time of his appearance to mary magdalene was his actual rising would be earlier, and that's all there is to it. No, no problem. Uh, and Eusebius of Caesarea in in, in 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 his writing to Marinus, and again look in Roger Pierce's translation to see the details. Eusebius commends this second option to Marinus. Now Eusebius very easily could change his mind later on when he made his cans. But if Admirinum was all we had to go on, we'd say that Eusebius was accepting and encouraging Marinus to accept all of Mark 16, 19-20. But in Victor, when he's in, engaging Eusebius's claim, he says, uh, well, the, Eusebius, that may be the case. The way, that was what Eusebius was writing. But I find that there'd be very many copies of Mark that do have verse 19-20, especially in a copy of Mark that Victor's found, he called it his Palestinian exemplar. It was a highly cherished copy. And Victor says, therefore, we are keeping this passage. Also, Severus in homily 77 also uses Mark 16, 9 to 20. Leontius of Jerusalem, just to name a few more, Eugippus, Falcentius, uh, these are Latin writers, and the Martyrium Arite, in a little known writing called the Intonment of the Archangel Michael. Also, in a writing called The Life of Saint Samson of Dole, from the 600s, 
and also in Revelation of the, of the, of the Magi, of Magi um, these are early works. Uh, some of them, even though they're preserved here, they, 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 um, you, you can argue that these works are composite works and that the part that has it in it is much earlier, but it's only been preserved in these writings. Uh, the life of St. Samson of Duel and Revelation of the Magi are not well known, but they should be included here. Also, you, you'll notice the name Palladius of Retieria back, back writing around the year uh, four, 425 at the, at, at the latest. Palladius is some celebrated for I don't think the UBS the UBS uh, New Testament, Greek New Testament, I don't think it has any, any idea of Palladius citing it. Um, the, the, the writings, the writings for the, about Mark 16 and 20, uh, mentions, uh, for instance, the uh, the Adish manuscript in, in Old Jordan. Uh, these are from the 800s or from the 900s, uh, but yet no mention of Palladius. Um, that data has been around since 1899. Why is it not being mentioned in the UBS textual apparatus? Why does Nestle Allen make no mention of it? Um, again, I could make accusations, but I won't. I'll let readers draw their own conclusion over how reliable that textual apparatus is when it could name all of these and only names about three or four. Any questions so far? I just, did you, um, did you compile all of that yourself? Did, did you come uh, through this, this stuff over, uh, Decades. Yes, uh, a lot of my work was done for me by, by Dean Bergen, but uh, in my book, uh, the authenticity of Mark sixteen nineteen twenty, uh, authentic the the case for Mark sixteen nineteen twenty, I go over uh, each one of these. Now, previous I only recently was able to confirm, but hopefully in, in a later edition of my, my book, I will list all all these, and in in the edition you can get on Amazon as an ebook. I go into more detail, and uh, and I imagine that has the specific uh, passages which, yeah. uh, which you're referring to. Yeah, great. Yes. Uh, so, uh, what do we have here? Uh, this is lectionary sixteen oh two. It's about the seven hundred seven hundreds, which compared to those writers that I just mentioned, it's after those. But uh, this is a important reference because it shows the connection of the manuscripts that are often cited are basically referred to as the sum that for some reason the footnote writers can't specify the six manuscripts that have the shorter ending in Greek. The short the shorter ending of Mark is often presented in footnotes and in some cases even as an alternative in the text. But lectionary 1602 shows how connected those manuscripts are because it has specific notes and a specific format of verse eight, which I shall proceed now to describe. Uh, they have a note that says in, in uh, for instance, in Codex L, which we'll take a look at later. And also we can look at manuscripts at 083 is one, another one of those six manuscripts and also 099. But if you compare the notes, they will say after Mark 16, eight, um, 
some manuscripts also have this. And then we have the shorter in ending. That's what we see here in the first column. After that, we see a note that says, and also we have this. And then you have, as you can see with that, with that A there, that's the beginning of, of chapter 16, verse nine. Well, lectionary 1602 is not the only one that has this, this feature before, before the beginning of chapter 16, verse nine, where it has these notes and the longer ending. If we were to uh, look at, uh, let's see, you have, um, Slide number 15 about Codex L. I just brought it up. Codex L, yes, here it is. Codex Regius, a very important manuscript of the Gospels. It also has this note after the end of verse 8, but before the shorter ending. It says, in some there is also this. And then it has the shorter ending. It shows the connection. It shows, shows the locale that we see in, Co in Codex L. It's basically a manuscript that reflects the text of Egypt in the 700s. After the shorter ending, the note says, just like we saw in, in, in uh, very similar to Lectionary 1602, there is also this appearing after, for they were afraid. And then you have verses 9 through 20 up until the end. There at the end, you have the end of Mark and the, the closing title is written. And then the, the chapter titles for the text of the Gospel of Luke begin. But it is very similar between the two, between the text in Codex L and what we see in Coptic in, in Luxury 1602. Right. We see not only the same text, uh, the same well one's translated but we see the same notes and also we see the same repetition of part of verse eight in i believe if i recall if i recall correctly uh lectionary 1602 has it and lex and uh either it's uh zero eight zero eight three or or zero nine nine or maybe both but that is a distinct feature that shows how very closely connected all of these witnesses for the shorter ending are uh, the the close close relationship between those witnesses uh, cannot be overstated because it's so understated almost everywhere. I don't think there's a footnote writer for any version that in English that has pointed out how they're closely connect, connected. Right. So I think it's it's kind of like. Um, if you can show that one witness is dependent upon another witness, then they don't really count as multiple attestation. Um, by the same token, if you can show in this context that these various witnesses, the shorter ending of Mark, um, uh, seem to derive from a common source other than Mark himself, uh, then it loses some of its force as attestation to the actual early text of, of the autograph. Is that, does that basically represent what you're saying? Yes. Yes, yes. The thing to see with the shorter ending is that unless you have independent scribes writing out of the blue the same note before before the shorter ending, and out of the, out of the blue writing the same note before Mark 16:19-20, and out of the blue reformatting verse eight to show the continuation, um, then obviously you have a connection. You have a relationship between them. 
So when it says now some manuscripts say this, first of all, it's only six manuscripts in total. But also in the earliest of those six manuscripts, you see a strong connection that pins them down to Egypt, to the place where the short ending was in circulation early on. Now, later on, it tra traveled pretty well to the south. And there is one Latin witness, Old Latin Codex Babiensis, which is a messed up text of Mark, no matter how you slice it. In Mark 16, between verses three and four, uh, Metzger happens to point out what it says. It has a reading that says, um, well, it can be translated this way. Suddenly, this is between verses three and four of Mark 16. But suddenly, at the third hour of the day, there was darkness over the whole circle of the earth, and angels descended to the heavens. And as he, the Lord, was rising in the glory of the living God, at the same time they ascended with him, and immediately it was light. Then the woman went to the tomb. I would like to ask those that point out what Codex Babiensis says in Latin, in, for instance, the, 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 uh, the note that we saw earlier, why don't they also point out what it says in verses three and four, if Codex Babiensis is so important? Because they give the reader no idea of what a messed up text this is and how relatively incompetent the, the copyist of Codex Babiensis was. Here on the second page, you can see the, the um, shorter ending as it closes up. But you can also see if you can read Latin, which I don't do very well, but I do enough to see, tell that the scribe has written from the east to the east instead of from the east to the west. And instead of saying, talking about Peter, he's talking about a child. And that's been corrected in the manuscript. And also the manuscript uh, left out the word predicationis. That's why it appears here at the end. But it, it's not a well-written manuscript at all. And uh, this is the only case in which we see the shorter ending after Mark 16, 8. Uh, even in the Codex K here in, in Babiensis, uh, not all of verse 8 is there. Codex verse 8 has been edited out, so, so you don't have that last part about the woman not saying anything to anyone because it goes on to say in the short inning, they said something to, to somebody uh, plain as day. Um, but that's what we have as Codex Babiensis. It's the only manuscript in which the short ending and nothing more follows verse 8. Um, again, we're talking about one manuscript, and it's probably the worst copied manuscript in the world of the Gospel of Mark. So the, it's the only manuscript where there is no um, indication of an awareness of uh, uh, 1690 20? It's the only manuscript that we see in Latin that, that ends with the shorter ending. Okay. Now, if the footnote writers want to make a more detailed photo, uh, I have this one to suggest, but of course, this footnote would not guide the reader to the conclusion that they want the reader to reach. But this is the footnote, if a footnote at all is going to be put in, I would say it should say something like this. These 12 verses are supported by over 99% of the Greek manuscripts of Mark, and were used in the 100s by Justin, Tatian, and Irenaeus. And in the 200s through 400s, where more than 40 writers 
from a wide variety of places, all the way from Patrick in Ireland to Ephraim in Syria and Esnick of Gold in Armenia. They are not in the two oldest extant manuscripts of Mark 16, Vaticanus and Zanagus, both of which have unusual features at this point. These 12 verses are also absent in one old Latin manuscript, the one we just saw, which has a shorter ending. One Syriac manuscript, this is the Codex of the Sinaitic Syriac, one Sinaitic manuscript, and many medieval Armenian manuscripts. And that's as far as the external evidence would, would take us, as far as the early evidence. Where do those, just out of curiosity, where do those medieval Armenian texts come from in terms of their ancestral lineage? Well, the Armenian version, uh, it's kind of a complex question, but uh, basically the Armenian version began in the 400s. The, after the Armenian version was initially made by a man named Mesotes, again, I'm probably mangling that, but uh, Mesotes, initially made about the year 410. But just shortly afterwards, some Armenian scholars had traveled to the Council of Ephesus around the year 420, and they stopped in Constantinople along the way. And there they found a highly esteemed copy of the Gospels, or a highly esteemed codex, I should say. It doesn't say it's just the Gospels, but they, they took that manuscript back to Armenia. And when they saw the Greek text, they revised the text of in Armenian according to what they had there in that Greek codex. How extensively it was revised, it's a good question. But it agrees with the, what's known as the family of, of, of well, the manuscripts we saw before, a family one uh, manuscripts like 1582. So it's what's known as uh, what's known as uh, what used to be known as the Caesarean text. Uh, the Armenian text is a highly Caesarean text of the Gospels, and likewise the Georgian text, which was translated from Armenian, from from Armenian, is likewise Caesarean. So it, it's confined to that particular group of manuscripts that we know as family one. The thing is, in family one, in the Greek text that we have, um, verses 9 through 20 are there. There's just this note that makes a reference to uh, Eusebius's canons didn't, didn't have verses 9 through 20, and some of the some, some copies don't have it. So perhaps a note like that could have caused some Armenian copies to say, well, if a highly esteemed manuscript says that their manuscripts don't have it, maybe we shouldn't put it in there either if, it's not ha if it doesn't have universal attestation. And that could explain why many of these early Armenian manuscripts end Mark at verse 8. On the other hand, Esnick of Gold, one of the Armenian translators in the 400s, in one of his writings, he quotes from verses 17 through 18. It's not a very exact quote, but there's enough of it to show that it's Mark 16, 17 through 18 that's being quoted. So if one of the translators has it there, uh, there's simply uh, not, not enough of the Armenians to show 
I'll do conclude that most definitely uh, it was there in the Iranian I would say most, most definitely, definitely it was not there because out of a hundred manuscripts that were looked at by, by uh, Colwell back in uh, 1937, he looked over a hundred Armenian manuscripts that had Mark 16 and the hundred manuscripts didn't have verses 19 to 20. But you could go back and find easily from the monasteries at the uh, uh, Matanadarin and places close to Mount, close to uh, Mount Ararat. Look at their collections of manuscripts because many more have been discovered since 1937. In fact, they're still looking through them to this day. To this day, excuse me. You can easily find manuscripts that are just as old or just slightly younger that contain verses 9 to 20. So, so that, that's uh, the general picture of the Armenian evidence. The old, the old Georgian should also be considered. Again, there are old Georgian manuscripts from, and again, when I say the old, I'm talking, I'm not talking old, like, like old, old. I'm talking medieval. But the oldest Georgian manuscripts that we have end at verse 8, but that's because the Georgian was translated from Armenian manuscripts. And you could pretty much take uh, Armenian manuscripts and, and you could flip a coin whether it has verses 1920 or not. Gotcha. Uh, some Armenian manuscripts are also uh, unusually formatted, uh, and this was kind of minimized by, by Metzger, I think, that. Uh, in some of the Georgian manuscripts, echoing the Armenian manuscripts, sometimes Mark 16, 19, 20, we see it ends at verse 8, but it's written out with the letters all stretched out. In other words, the codex was formatted by a scribe intending to include verses 19, 20, but when the manuscript was, was actually written, it was written by a scribe using a different exemplar which did not include this 1920. And uh, those are not your everyday codices, but those, that's, that's uh, just part of why the Armenian and Georgian evidence is a lot more complex than the impression you would get from Metzger. Right, right, right. Now, just, just briefly, let's consider the internal evidence. We, we see Metzger and everybody that just kind of parrots Metzger, that, that has read Metzger and, and doesn't, doesn't want to parrot doesn't want to plagiarize him, but wants to say what he says in just a slightly different form. And so you'll see, for instance, in NET, uh, the non-Markan verses being, being re referred to. But it's important to notice things that Metzger does not mention and that most readers will not be aware of, and that is how many once-used words in a 12-verse segment of the Gospel of Mark imply that that 12-verse segment is non-Markan. Well, Look in Mark 1, 1 through 12. There were 17 once used words. Now, the idea is uh, Metzger said there were uh, uh, other, other commentators said there's 18 words in Mark 16, 9 to 20 that Mark never uses. It's non Markan vocabulary. And it's described as non Markan because they're really once used words. You could just exchange the words non Markan for the word once used. It's the same thing. In Mark 2, 16 through 27, those 12 verses, 18 once used words. In Mark 4, 13 through 24, 
16 once used words. In Mark 4, 37 through 57, again, 12 verses, 17 once used words. In Mark 6, 40, 49 through Mark 7, 4, 17 once used words. And you, are, you can read this off the page. Uh, in Mark 13, 13 through 24, 5, 21 once used words. In 12, 34 through 31, 19 once used words. In 1437 through 1448, those 12 verses, there are 19 once used words. In Mark 15, 13 through 24, 23 once used words. In Mark 15, 37 through 61, there are 24 once used words. You could go through those, and if you wanted to, if you wanted to call those into question, you could say, look at all these non-marking words, and yet you never do. Because really, the thing that really matters isn't the internal evidence. They're using that simply as a smoke screen. And I know it might, might sound accusatory. I apologize for that. But using those once used words as if they imply non marketedness is simply absurd when you consider how many times you can find in another 12 verse section of Mark that is not in question the same or higher number of once used words being used. Yeah, it's not 18 uh, once used words in Mark 69 to 20 was the figure I think you mentioned. I mean, yes. that, that sounds from the selection here like it's about average. It's, it's a bit higher than average, but it's by no means unique. I think it comes in something like ninth place, maybe, if you compare all the 12 verse sections of Mark. Right, right. It's not, it's, it's not unusual uh, if you if you look at these other 12, 12 verse sections. Yeah, and if you take into account that it's uh, uh, it's describing a unique event in the gospel, which I think might might have something to do with why in 1537 to 16, 16 one, you've got 24 once used words. It's talking about um, a unique narrative in the gospel, not just another parable. Uh, let's hit the well, these are these are once used words to Mark. Right. Um, Mark usually doesn't repeat himself very much, so most 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 parts of Mark would, would be unique sections. But uh, we've seen the three manuscripts that support the ending at Mark sixteen eight. What manuscripts support the included son of Mark sixteen nine twenty? Well, you start with uh, these, Codex A, Codex C, Codex D, Codex E. Now, we've just seen a, a small fraction of these unsure magical manuscripts. But if we were look in detail at them, we'd, we'd see it. And also all these manuscripts. You'd see all of these up to 379, but it doesn't stop there. There are many more. And we'll see them in just a moment. Yes, here are some more. We'll also see Mark 16, 9 through 20 is in these manuscripts. Now, a word of caution, um, you can't really do textual criticism by majority vote. And as Metzger said, manuscripts have to be weighed and not just counted. But when you have footnotes that say 
some versus others, I think it's a good idea to give readers an idea of how many manuscripts we're talking about. We're talking about when by some they mean six, and by others they mean 1,643. Now, by the way, these statistics are slightly dated. Probably right now we probably have an even 1,650, because if more had been discovered ending at verse eight, you can be pretty sure we'd have heard about it. So in these last few slides, you've seen how many and how diverse the testimony in favor of Mark 16, 9 through 20 is, in addition to the Roman era patristic writings. Now, I do have a lecture online, uh, the 16th lecture in my series, in which I go into detail about how I think Mark 16, 9 through 20 was lost. But if we're going to get to uh, uh, any other topic today, um, we'll have to uh, resume uh, and, and look at that another day. But that I feel, believe will show you that Mark 16, 9 to 20 does not deserve to be set aside. It does not deserve the treatment it's received from, from, from the RSV. It does not deserve the, the uh, totally false footnote that it receives in the message and the misleading footnotes that it has in, in NIV and ESV and the NLT. I think it deserves to be recognized as part of the word of God. Yeah. Are there any questions? Uh, well, I think uh, I want to, we should give uh, John 8 its own um, uh, discussion. Uh, we've been talking about Mark uh, 16 for uh, nearly two hours, I think. Uh, so I wonder if we might just wrap up today, if you could give us a cliff notes summary of how you think it was lost, if you think that the essence of that summary could be preserved in cliff notes. Yes. Uh, to sum up the question you asked, I believe that Luke, excuse me, that, that, that Mark, as he was writing the Gospel of Mark, was in, interrupted, by, interrupted by some kind of emergency. We don't know what it was. It might have been Roman persecutors, but we don't know. But he stopped at chapter 16, verse 8. But that's not the end of the story. In multiple books of the Old Testament, you have multiple authors. You don't have just one person writing the Pentateuch, for example. Moses, and if you look at the, the final verses, you can see Moses being referred to as you know, Moses died. And somebody else writes those final verses, but the, we don't. We don't, for that reason, or for that deduction, uh, throw out those verses because they're in all the copies. Likewise, in Proverbs, we don't throw out the verses that are not attributed to Solomon. We say Solomon wrote part, but the men of Hezekiah came upon later and ex expanded upon his work. Uh, and later on, we also have the, the last two chapters when their authors are given. Uh, not by the main author of the work. Likewise, in Jeremiah, when we turn to the Hebrew text, it says before the last chapter of Jeremiah begins, it says, here the, works, the words of Jeremiah are ended. And yet there's another whole chapter following that looks a lot like First Kings. Uh, 
we don't define the original text as what we can extrapolate or deduce to be the earliest text. We consider the, the original text to be what is the text that was in the autograph, the copy from which all other copies have been, have been made. When we look at Mark 69-20, it does not appear to be the a text that Mark himself wrote as the end of Mark. But which somebody else took and attached to Mark 16 verse 8. I believe that it was in that form after Mark 69 through 20 had been attached from a previous earlier composition that Mark had made, possibly made for, for use at especially at Easter time in the church at Rome. I think that the colleagues of Mark knew that Mark did not want to intend for his text, his narrative about Peter's recollection of, of Mark, excuse me, Peter's recollections of, of Jesus. They, they knew that Mark had not intended a, a book to end at verse eight. They knew that Peter had often spoken about the resurrection appearances of Christ as is stated in Acts. And so they took this previously existing composition and attached that to Mark's unfinished narrative. Then later on, after, after, after copies began to be made in Rome, in Egypt, the copies said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We want what Peter said. We want what, what Peter affirmed. This, this part here, this part about poison drinking, this part about picking up snakes, uh, that came from Peter's secretary. That's not part of the authentic account. And so the same sort of thing that, that a person would do if they were making oh, the authentic account of Moses, they would say, let's take out that part that talks about Moses' death. And likewise, the, the Alexandrian copyist, because of a desire not to include anything that didn't, didn't come from who they saw as the main as the main author, they deleted or are, are overlized. It didn't have to be all in one step, but in either one step or two, they re removed what they thought to be secondary. Uh, in Codex Sinaiticus, uh, we see at the, end, at the end of John, uh, the copyist did the same thing, but then changed his mind. He he left out. The last verse of, of John 21. And you can't see this with the images you have online, but the TC Skeet uh, had scholars uh, put also ultraviolet light over the manuscript when he had it. And they could then plainly see what Tischendorf had, had proposed, which was that the, the scribe of Sinaiticus had, had initially ended, ended John 1 verse early because of a belief that that last verse was secondary. But then the supervisor of the manuscript had, had, had said, and this is theoretically the exact reason isn't clear, but the scribe then erased the closing title of John and put in the last verse and then put in the closing title of John. So we see that this, this tendency to favor uh, only what comes from the initial author could cause a scribe to delete 
or was in, in the manuscript in, in front of his eyes because of this extrapolation that could be made. I think that happened very early in the Alexandrian text. Meanwhile, everywhere else in the Roman Empire, Rome, where the manuscript came from, where, where the Gospel of Mark was written, nowhere in anybody, does anybody from Rome ever question Mark 16, 9 to 20. They always have. All the way from Ireland to France, where Irenaeus was, to Rome, and to Cyprus, and to Asia Minor, and to Syria, and to Palestine, well, Israel, and into, into Armenia, everywhere else besides, besides Egypt, you see Mark 16, 19-20, you see it being used authoritatively. You never see the shorter ending being used authoritatively. Nobody seems to know that it, it exists. Eusebius, when he's writing to Marinus, he doesn't seem to know that the shorter ending exists. It probably has not trickled up to Caesarea by that time, by the time, by the time he's writing. Now, later on in the Ethiopic copies and some of Bahara copies, we see the shorter ending. We see it connected with Mark 16, 19-20, but it, it all trickles back to the early Alexandrian branch. And that's why it is not in those early Alexandrian manuscripts. It's not in the Sinaitic Syriac, and it's not in the Sahidic texts. Well, the, the early Sahidic texts. But we see it everywhere else. Apart from those three manuscripts, we see it being used by the church. And because we see it being used in antiquity by the church, we should be using it authoritatively today. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this has been really interesting. Um, I'm glad we got to go so in depth uh, into uh, this important text. Uh, and I look forward to doing the same uh, if you uh, are still up for it uh, with John chapter eight, the, uh, the PA. Uh, I hope you all, uh, dear audience, have enjoyed the one, the only, the lovely James Snap. Uh, and uh, uh, I hope you're looking forward to uh, his next interview as much as I am. Thank you very much.